This is Channel Journeys, the podcast for channel professionals. Here you will meet and learn from channel experts who share their channel victories, defeats, and lessons learned along the way. Here's your host, channel chief and adventure seeker, Rob Spee. Hello, channel pros. Happy New Year and welcome to the first episode of Channel Journeys in 2021. We are beginning the third year of this podcast and I want to thank you so much for listening. Well, this year is already off to a great start. I was out in Scottsdale, Arizona this past week. We had our first live business meeting at OutSystems and really that was since last March. So what, 10 months without meeting. And it was so great getting a chance to connect face to face with my colleagues and it made me realize how much I really miss that live interaction. I hope we can do it again before too long. And I had a, an awesome bike ride this morning. It was 34 degrees Fahrenheit, which is about one degree Celsius. We had light snow flurries during the entire 60-mile ride. It was fantastic. And I'm super excited to have Magentrix continuing as the sponsor of Channel Journeys for another quarter. Magentrix specializes in partner and customer web portals. And I'm really impressed by the functionality that comes included out of the box for no extra charge. That includes the must-haves like deal registration, pricing and quoting, tracking for referral commissions and reseller discounts, as well as things like dynamic content delivery, training and certifications, incentives, and even gamification. Magentrix has a full-blown bi-directional integration with Salesforce, with Microsoft Dynamics, and even HubSpot. And stay tuned at the end of the show, I'll tell you about a special offer from Magentrix. I'm kicking off the year with an international twist. My guest today lives across the pond from the States. He's a well-known channel guru in Europe, and he has written multiple books, including How to Build Successful Partner Channels, and he's my first Channel Journeys guest from Denmark. I am speaking with Hans-Peter Beck about his latest book, How to Go Global on a Shoestring. And you're about to hear some really great tips on how to expand internationally. Are you ready to go global on a shoestring? Let's go. Hans-Peter Beck, hello over in Denmark. How are you doing? Uh, thank you very much. It's uh, late in the afternoon here. It's already dark, 4 p.m. I'm doing great. And thank you very much for having me on your show. Oh, it's really exciting, Hans-Peter. You know, I've been following you. You've been in the channel for years, and I've been, I've been in the channel for years, and, and hearing of you and seeing your work. So it's really exciting to finally have you on the program. Thanks for joining us. Great. great. Happy to be here. So uh, exactly where in Denmark are you hunkered down? I'm located just north of Copenhagen, just about 36 kilometers. That'll be about 20 miles north of Copenhagen in a small provincial town called Hillerud. Hillerud, yeah, and I'm actually living in the country. So looking out of my window now, I can see the sun is setting uh, over the hills in the background. Very nice. Hey, were you able to see the Christmas star last night? It was cloudy here. Was it? Yeah, unfortunately. I could just see it through the through the trees. It was pretty cool. But a a lot of neat photos that I saw this morning of of what people had taken. (sighs) Well, very good. Well, we're recording this just before Christmas. It'll probably go live after the New Year's, but uh, Merry Christmas to you. And Merry and Christmas to you. Thank you very much. So you've just recently put out a new book, Going Global on a Shoestring, and, and that's what I want to chat with you today and learn a lot more about it. And it's, it's an interesting topic. It certainly is. <laughs> and Going Global may have changed with recent events going on too. So we'll, we'll touch on that. So first off, tell us about Going Global on a Shoestring, this book. What's it all about? The book is about how to attract the first customers in foreign countries when you have a great product, but only a small budget. 
Okay. And, and I make this distinction because for most companies, getting the first 10 to 50 customers in a, in a, in a new market is a very different job from getting the next 100 or 1,000 customers. Mm. So, so the book is really about how to get started with international activities without betting the farm and risking what you already have. And I, I used to say that big companies can afford to make big mistakes. Small companies <laughs> cannot. <laughs> no, they can't. I've, I've, I've started small companies. You cannot afford to make mistakes. So the book offers simple frameworks for how you can design your international go-to-market approach and test it out before in investing in scaling measures. Got you. And why is going global so important for a, a B2B software startup? If, if you come from a small country, I think it's pretty obvious. Um, let's just take an example of Finland. Uh, Finland represents probably 0.25% of the global market. So if you have ambitions of, of growing your business in Finland, there is absolutely no way you can do that by focusing on your domestic market only. You have yeah. to go global. Yeah. And obviously the same goes for, for all the other small countries around. And, and if you look at, at all the countries in the world, most of them are small. You have the U.S. As, as the biggest market, which is for most software between 30 and 50% of the world market. But the rest of the markets are fairly small. And there are two reasons to take advantage of the potential you have to go, go global, but also in, in order to keep investing in making the product competitive or keeping the product competitive and expanding the product so that your customers are happy, you need a much broader customer base and what your domestic market can provide. So did you write the book primarily for software company owners or, or employees in these smaller countries, or would it equally apply to, to companies here in the U.S.? Yeah, it, it applies to, to everybody, because going global on a shoestring means that you find a way to the market that is not very risky and not very expensive, and, and, and that, that would apply to everybody. Mm -hmm. um, so the ideal reader, the, the one that I had in mind when I, I wrote the book, is, is the small B2B software company that works with international business development. And when I say small, it's up to 200 people. Okay. And that doesn't mean that companies with more than 200 people cannot get value from the book. I, I believe they can. But it just means that I've targeted companies that have small teams and minimal financial means. Mm -hmm. so, so, so that's the that's target group. And when I talk about B2B software, I, I mean software sold to businesses. And that really, it really doesn't matter with which license format you use. I think today most companies will be software as a service driven. So I've, I've spent some pages in the book explaining why it really doesn't matter that much in, a, in an international penetration context, whether you have perpetual paid up, a paid up license or you have a software as a service. That's more of a cash flow issue. You're actually, the, 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 the challenges you're facing are fairly much the same. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So when should a company start thinking about going global or, or actually start going global? How long can they wait? Or does that depend on what country you're in? Obviously, it does. I mean, if, if you're starting your, your company in the U.S., you have a, a fairly big domestic market that you can tap into before considering going, going global. Mm -hmm. So if, if you have 30 to 50 percent of, uh, of, of the global market, as your domestic market, 
then that, that is probably not your most the most urgent item on on the agenda. And you can grow to become a major company before you go international. And a lot of U.S. companies do that. Mm-hmm. But but my point is that that maybe you sh- maybe that becomes a problem be- because you then you then hire people who do not have an international mindset because you don't need that. You design yep. your product so that it's it's not that easy to localize to the local markets. It doesn't have an international format so that you can accommodate the various uh, differences in, in in number formats and date formats and and sorting formats. So my point is, it's probably a good idea that you start from scratch. Actually, when you start out, that you have the international opportunity in mind. Otherwise, yeah. you'll have to re-engineer your business considerably down the road. I would think too, Hans-Peter, if, you, if you're waiting, like let's say you're a US company and you're, you've got a huge market and so you're, I'm going to wait, I'm going to wait. You're also giving your competition yeah. a chance to take hold in those other countries. Yeah. That maybe 20, 30 years ago, that was not such a big issue. But now with, with the internet and our ability to quite easily communicate across borders um, in real time, that has become much more of an issue. Yeah, absolutely. The world is much more competitive today than it was 20 years ago. Yeah. And, and much smaller. Yeah. So you, you ask a fun question in your book, how long is a shoestring? Yeah. So- <laughs> Talk about that. How little of a budget can companies go global on? I translate it into its euphorism for how much you can afford to lose. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good way of putting it. <laughs> so how much can you afford to lose? It, it really is. The question is serious. I, I divide the um, I, I divide the, the sort of the, the, the situations into two main scenarios. And the one scenario is where your company is physical. And mm-hmm. with physical means that you have physically to meet with your customers during the sales process and probably also during the implementation and support process. That means that you need feet on the ground in that foreign market that you want to, to get into. And that obviously is quite expensive. The other scenario is the virtual, the, the virtual situation where you you can approach customers, you can sell to them, you can Im- implement, the, implement uh, the the solution with them, and you can support them without ever meeting them physically. You can do it yeah. virtually. And I think during the COVID-19 pandemic, that threshold has shifted substantially. It, it really has. I, and I was as I was reading your book, I was wondering, with COVID, is there such a thing as a physical company? Because that's we've almost proven that you can... Even our business, where we thought we had to be on site to sell, we had to be on site to deliver. We're not now. We're doing it all virtually. Yeah. I think that when we are all vaccinated and and there's no COVID-19 anymore and we can travel freely around the world, there will still be situations where customers will prefer to sit down face-to-face with their vendors. Mm-hmm. Because the investments they made in software is is substantial. And and so they need to make sure that, that... whatever they're about to do, that they're doing it right. Um, but it won't. I don't think the pendulum will swing all the way back. There's a lot of activities you can still do remotely. Yeah. And sort of the threshold of the investments that you're prepared to, to make without ever meeting people face-to-face has increased. There's no doubt right. about that. Yeah, so, absolutely. But if, if you have those two situations that you, you, you run a, a virtual business, and I, I give examples in the, in the book of, of a virtual business, 
uh, of several virtual businesses, for instance, Space Camp out of Chicago. Or if you run a physical business, uh, where an example is Epic, uh, I believe they're out of Wisconsin, the approaches you have available are very different. Mm-hmm. Obviously, because the not having to have people on or feet on the ground makes a very big difference. Now, the other big difference is whether customers find you or you have to find customers. <laughs> so if, if you're a virtual business and customers find you, then you can actually globalize your business. I hate to say fairly easy because it's, it's not easy at all, but, but you at least have the opportunity to serve customers in other countries without having to bother too much about time zones. You can you can actually cap some market share even if you're only offering English as your operating language. Obviously, you can get much better market penetration if you offer local language. But but there are customers around the world who have English as the second language. So so that's one set of opportunities you have to grow, grow to to grow on a on a shoestring budget. If you need to meet physically uh, with with your customers or even have a, a let's say a long sales process over 12 months with several interactions, then there are also shortcuts that you can, that you can make mm-hmm. um, not to bet the farm to actually win and, and start up a business in a foreign country. Now, I would guess that the, the, the punchline of going global on a shoestring is about the channel and leveraging partnerships. It can be. <laughs> it can be, but not always? No, not always. I'm, I've written another book, which is called uh, Building Successful Partner Channels. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and in that book, I, I explain when the indirect channel, when selling through value-added resellers or systems integrators or ISVs is the way to go. There are really two main criteria that we had to look at to make, make the decision whether we should take the indirect route. The, the first one is obviously whether there is an indirect channel available. Mm-hmm. There are areas where, where there is no indirect channel available. Let's just take an example. You're selling, you're selling banking applications to banks. That business has traditionally been a, di- a direct business. The software companies sold directly to the banks because the banks wouldn't accept that there was somebody in between who didn't take full responsibility for the solution. And the solutions were tend to be so complicated that the learning curve for a potential partner was very long. And there are actually not many deals in the market available to keep a channel alive, so to speak, mm-hmm. right? If, there are, if, if you have a market where there is only 15 deals a year available, then it's difficult to run a channel. So you have these niche market with enterprise type software where the tradition has been and, and also on the nature of, of the business, it's a direct business. Mm-hmm. So if, if you're in that area, and I have a few examples in the book, uh, one is again Epic, they are doing a healthcare management system for hospitals. An indirect approach will not work. When, when you're in the bottom of the market, when you're selling a base camp solution, which is collaboration software, very inexpensive, the, the software is, is easy to use, uh, you sign up and the learning curve is very short, you don't really need a channel for that. So in between those two scenarios, that, that's where the channel operates. 
And Which it, is where most of us are living. Yes, in that, in that that's right. Yeah, that's right. But not everybody, but most of us not are everybody. living in that middle segment. It's where we make our living. Yeah. And, and if there is a channel, then obviously that's the route to go. If there isn't a channel, if, if you're in an area, let's say you come up with a completely new uh, innovative solution for which there is no channel available, then you obviously have a, a, an issue uh, because you need then to convince channel partners who are serving these customers that they should expand their business with this, with this particular product, which is an, an uphill battle. Uh, so mm-hmm. normally there you would go direct. And then when you have a, a customer base, then you would start to invite partners to do the implementation and delivery. And over time, those partners will then learn how to sell the product. And then you would, that's, the, that's how you would build the, the channel based on an existing channel in a complementary area um, of, of the business. Is that the approach you take going global on a shoestring is first you've got to get in and land a few deals before you start building a channel in that country? That is very often the case, yes, because the the traditional thinking is I'll go into a new country, I'll recruit channel partners, and they will then do the the sales work for me. Mm -hmm. And there are two two issues with that. The the first issue is that being the first partner uh, reseller, knowing that down the road there will be more. It's very difficult to convince that first partner to invest a, a lot in brand building mm-hmm. because he will actually invest in preparing the market for all the other partners. For other partners, yeah. yeah. So there is a certain conservatism in, in, in the partner channel, and they will expect the vendor to invest in, in brand building and lead generation. Mm-hmm. And if, if they're not prepared to do that, my experience is that not much happened. You can recruit partners, they will sign on the partner agreement, but they won't invest heavily because they are afraid that they, they're just making life easy for the partners that are coming after them. Right. Unless, um, unless I, I would think if you gave them an exclusive. Exactly. And right. that is what I recommend in the book. You, you, need to, you need to face the brutal fact and say, these guys will only invest if you pr- help protect their investment. Mm-hmm. And you can do that by giving them exclusivity and say, okay, for the next 6, 12, whatever is relevant a month, we won't appoint any, any other. You'll have the market. And maybe, but we come back to uh, another, uh, another distribution model here, whether you have a two-tier or a one-tier distribution model. But, but if, if your intention is to have more partners, then extending the exclusivity is not going to be the answer. Mm-hmm. But it's at least giving them an opportunity yeah, yeah, to protect their investment right. in, in branding and, and market uh, preparation. So you might give exclusivity for a year, maybe maybe a two years, but it's not, yeah. not going to be long term. No. And, and, and obviously, you also have, you, have a, you have a job to do because you have to explain to that partner why it is to his or her benefit not to be the only partner. Because a lot of partners believe that having exclusive rights is sort of the ideal situation because all the deals have to come to me. Mm-hmm. But if you're just a small fish in a big pond, let's say you're a, a small a reseller in Germany, obviously you can enjoy the exclusivity, but it's what you do is too little to really create any major wave in the market. To, to do that and to build, to build a, a brand from which you can benefit in the future, you need more partners. You need colleagues. Mm-hmm. And obviously, very often, 
the new the, the first partners don't understand this logic. So so you have to to um, you have a job to do in convincing them that being non-exclusive actually also has its benefits because yeah, then, then you have more, yeah. you can build a bigger pie. You, exactly. You, Partner wants the whole the whole piece of a small pie, but he can have a piece of a much bigger pie that's exactly. going to be better for him. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So if your recommended approach, okay, I want to expand. I want to go into another country. I've got to build a little bit of brand. I've got to win a few customers, but I have no office. I don't have any physical presence. I don't have a legal entity there to hire employees from. How do I go about that? Those initial steps. There are there are two ways. The first one is you don't you don't to sell. You don't need a legal entity, and and you don't necessarily need need people on the ground, or at least not people, local people. You start by penetrating those customers that are prepared to communicate with you in English. Mm-hmm. And and let's just assume that you at least you have a product that is innovative. There is there is a reason why there is a market for you in a new country. It, you're doing more than just what all the other players are already doing in the market. So you have some competitive edge. Right. And if that's the case, then there will always, according to the the law of uh, diffusion of innovation, there will always be a percentage of customers who will be willing to talk to you. Because between 10 and 50% of, of all customers have a mindset where they are always looking for new ways of doing things. Mm-hmm. So they are looking for, for new and innovative solutions to problems they have. So if you come along and say, hey, I, I have a new and innovative solution, at least 10 to 15% will, will listen to you and say, hey, we would like to have a conversation about that. Right. And they will also be, be prepared to actually use the software, even though it's not perfect. Even though it's, it doesn't have a um, local language or, or it's not fully localized. If, yeah. if that's required, you will probably have to invest in, in doing that along the road. But they are prepared to engage with you even if that is not all in place yet. Right. You're finding so, those early adopters yeah. in that country. And, but you really have to understand that it's only 10 to 15%. Of, mm-hmm. of the customers, so you will have a you'll have to and and nobody walks around carrying a sign saying I'm an early innovator. <laughs> oh, <laughs> they, they, so you you don't know who they are. You can't you can't see on their LinkedIn pro- profiles that they are. So you have yeah. to you have to call a lot of of potential customers and ask questions to figure out whether they are in this category. Right. Right. And a lot, you know, people get discouraged. They get uh, discouraged when they they call a hundred people and and get so many rejections. But you just have to understand that, that you need to keep going, going, going until you find those who are prepared to talk to you. Now that makes sense, Hans Peter. So when that, I'm thinking about going global, who who should be my first hires? You know, I'm, I'm I'm I haven't even gone out to the country yet. I need to I need to do what you're describing, and then I want to build a channel. Who are the folks types of roles that I should be thinking about hiring? what I call business developers. Mm-hmm. And a business developer is is not a salesperson, but he has a lot or she has a lot of the characteristics that a salesperson has. So a business developer is definitely somebody who can pick up the phone or, or send an email to a potential customer and explain what this is all about and, and start a conversation as if she was attempting to sell something. But, but the objective is really to understand whether the customer is interested in this value proposition. Mm-hmm. If yes, how to continue the, the, the discussion? If not, why not? 
If you're looking, if you have an indirect model, you could even have a discussion with the, the potential customer about who they use for implement implementing these and, and these solutions. So you, you you're you're actually more out of of getting information on the situation, the market situation, and what it would take uh, for this particular customer to buy into your value proposition. Mm-hmm. That may require that you go back and change something to the product. So because you are you're trying to figure out whether the market is prepared for the product that you are successfully selling in your domestic market. But that, mm-hmm. that market that you're selling into may be very different. There may be different competitors. There may be different um, market requirements. And that you need to find out. And, and, and maybe you even need to go back and change something in, in your product development plan to accommodate, accommodate those changes so that you have a product market fit. Right, right. So that's the, that's the business developer's job. And all in those conversations, he and she have to figure out, is this potential customers that I'm, I'm, customer I'm talking uh, with right now, is that someone that we want to sell to in the future? Or should we rather back off because the changes that we have to do are too big? And, and obviously, you need a number of conversations with potential customers to make that decision. Right. So, so at this point of time, you you're not your objective is not to sell; it's to understand. Right. Makes but sense. yeah, but if you but if you pretend you're not selling, you don't get honest answers. So, <laughs> <laughs> right, people have to be under a certain decision pressure. Yeah. Um, other otherwise, they'll just be friendly and say, "Oh, this sounds great, and this is fantastic." So and and that's and maybe that's not an honest answer, honest answer. So you you need to to have that pretend that you're selling something even though you're not. So so my my short answer, the the, the profile you need is a business developer. What would come after that? Do you start then? Do you need some channel talent to start going out and recruiting, finding the right partners, and getting them ramped up? Then you need you need to close some deals. And at the Perfect. same time, you need to find channel partners. If if your mm-hmm. go to market approach is indirect. Yep. And and that's how you, you serve the market through channel partners. Then you need to find the channel partners that can actually deliver these solutions with your software. Very often the customer will actually point you in a direction and say, Okay, we understand that you can't implement this this software, you'll have that that's done by a business partner. We would prefer this by a business partner. Yeah, these are partners that we're working with yeah, today or yeah, this partner. Yeah. So, and, and then you'll need, and, and it's much easier to have a conversation with a potential business partner if there is already a deal on the table. Mm-hmm. It makes everything so much easier. Even you should, you should not, you should not cut through the, uh, the certification process and make sure they really understand what they're doing, but you probably have to help them. You have to work side by side with them on, on the first couple of implementations on, until they are capable of doing it on their own. So you do that in parallel. In parallel. Yeah. Yeah. That was one of, one of my questions I wanted to ask you was how do you train them to sell, train them to deliver that will, you know, deliver services that drive adoption and do that on a shoestring budget? It's, it's not easy. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you should train them to sell. Uh, that would not be my first priority. Uh, my first priority to, will be help them, uh, train them to implement mm-hmm. so that they, they can, then they can implement the product and they can have a reference customer. And, and then you can start working with them on, okay, how do we co-sell? How do we start marketing campaigns and programs? And how, how are we going to address the market together? Yeah. 
that's why I always say that going indirect is actually a more, even though people believe it's just the opposite, it's, it can be much more expensive and take much longer time than doing it directly because you need this partner development going on in parallel. Mm-hmm. You do it because it's, it scales much easier when you got the ball rolling. But the, the, the initial cost is higher. Yes. Is that what you're saying? Yes, it is. That yeah. upfront cost. But, but long-term, you should get a much higher return on that investment. Absolutely. I hope so. Otherwise, we're in trouble. Yeah. But, and, and, and we are not in trouble because, <laughs> no, because I think history has proven that that's the way it works. Yes. And when I say history, and that's also one of the cases in, in the book, is, is the company uh, Navision that, that, uh, that I used to work with. That, that built a, a, a channel to resell their ERP software around the world. And they ended up being acquired by Microsoft for billions. And, and one of the reasons Microsoft paid billions for that software company was because they had the channel. Mm-hmm. That was a major portion of the value of the company. Not only the products, also the channel that was capable of selling and implementing and bringing this software into all corners in the market. Right, right. Yeah. And those of us in the channel totally get that. And, but we yeah. often have to convince our, our CFOs of that fact. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> any, any thoughts of, of, are there certain strategies of where you want to go first? You're looking to expand or are there certain geographies, continents, countries that, that no matter where I'm located, I should be thinking of going to first? Yes, I believe so. The, the first issue you have is really a language issue. Yeah. And let's just assume that, that most companies are capable of speaking English. Mm-hmm. Traditionally, that's, that's been the case because all compilers are English, right? So at least <laughs> the software has to be written in English. So it, going into another country where English is an operating language makes everything so much easier. Yeah. It may not give you deep penetration, but at least it, it, it gets you a bridgehead. Mm-hmm. So, and that obviously means that that if if you're a, U- a U.S. company, you would look at the U.K., you would look at South Africa, you would look at Australia, and you would look at New Zealand and um, and Hong Kong and, and and other places, or the Scandinavian countries, or mm-hmm. Switzerland, or the Netherlands, because those countries you can actually get quite far with just speaking English. Yeah. So that would I would definitely do that. If you have an IT technical product or a very technical product, you can also go into Germany and France and Italy because if you're in a very specialized specialized market, the capability of, of doing business in English is um, is much higher than if, if you're dealing with the with an, with an average company. So language would be my first your first guide. Yeah, would be the first guide. Yeah. Now the the second is that is much more difficult. Because when when you when you stand there and and look at the globe and you know nothing about the markets, <laughs> what what are you gonna do? Mm-hmm. So if if we say okay, I'm I'm gonna take out France. I'm not gonna do France. I'm not gonna do Italy. I'm gonna do UK and I'm gonna do Australia. Then you have to quickly get an assessment of whether that market is already dominated by another player, making it difficult for you to make any inroads. Right. And and there I recommend using the Alexander Osterwald business model framework, um, especially the business environment definitions. It's it's just a way of describing a market and, and then calling on customers and, and interviewing them, the business development approach. 
mm-hmm. and asking them all sorts of questions. You can do that yourself, or you can you can hire somebody in the countries to do that. In all countries in 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 the world at this point in time, there are companies that will do that on your behalf. Yeah. Yeah, like the one I mentioned in the book, Salesforce Europe, who is doing it primarily for U.S. companies. But all countries have such companies where you can outsource the sort of the initial business development uh, tasks to get a feeling for whether this market is is already dominated by somebody else, or there are some other issues that will make it difficult. And if and and out of that, and and as you you cannot. You cannot do that market analysis in 20 countries at the same time. So, so you have to pick those where you believe, based on on desk research on the internet, that, that there is a an opportunity. Yeah, and, that makes sense. And that's the way you do it. So let's let's say I've followed this approach. I've gone in. I've I've done some business development. I've secured a few customers. Gotten a little bit of brand recognition. Now I've, I'm starting to build a channel. It's successful. It's selling. It's delivering. Is there ever a point where I even need to set up my own office or should I just keep going with this virtual channel strategy? Yeah, you can. I mean, there is, it, I would say in, in the, if we talk about the average situation, mm-hmm. there is probably a point in time where you need to set up a subsidiary, where, where scaling to become a market leader from, from just having a few customers to own more than 10% of the market, you, you really need a local presence. Mm-hmm. You need more marketing power. You need more sales power. You need more channel management power. You need to be present at the um, in in the press. You need to be at the uh, the local exhibitions. We don't have any exhibitions right now, but I presume that they will be back. So so in that situation, yes, you will need feet on the ground. Mm-hmm. But your market may be such a niche market that that is not required. But that may not be the average situation. I'm thinking here about Epic again, the the U.S. company delivering healthcare IT solutions. They now own, they sit on 50% of the Danish market. They do have a subsidiary here, but that's mainly for support purposes. It's not for sales purposes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If, if there if there ever was another sales project, they would probably fly people in from the U.S. to do the sales work. Mm-hmm. So if you're in a niche market, maybe you don't even need a subsidiary in each country. Right. But but the average situation you will. But but when you have the first customers and and the first references and the first partners, then the risk associated with making as investments in your own infrastructure has been minimized considerably. So I think it's an easier step to take for companies. Yeah, yeah, and I've been in billion multi billion dollar companies where we went kind of followed that model. We went in and got the partnerships going. Then we uh, established a subsidiary. But even then, we still had other countries that were smaller markets. We said, you know, it's just not worth us setting up our own office there. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. All right. Great. Well, shifting topics a little bit, I always like to know more about the channel journeys of my guests. So how about you? How did you become a channel consultant? You've been at this for quite a long time. What got you interested in the channel in the first place? Ah, It it goes back to... um, 1986, and I, I remember as, as it was yesterday, <laughs> I, was, I was working for a big American company called Control Data Corporation. They were headquartered in Minneapolis. Okay. My job, I was uh, the sales manager in, in Denmark, and our job was to sell ma- mainframes that was made by Control Data Corporation. In those days, that was still a mainframe business. And one day in 1986, uh, somebody called me 
and say, hey, we've we've started a new company and we're looking for a, a VP sales and marketing who can build, who can sell this, who can build a, a marketing and sales organization from scratch, penetrating global markets. And uh, mm-hmm. your name has been mentioned. So I took a meeting with these people and, and they had developed a local area network suite of products for the PC. Mm-hmm. So that you, we're 1986. It's, it's early days yeah. for the PC. So they had a, a suite of products that they could tie together IBM mainframes with uh, IBM terminals with PCs. So they could make a complete local area network infrastructure in big companies. And um, I've been working with this in this area with Control Data uh, Corporation. So I knew, I knew about the market. And I could see that the, this Danish company definitely had an innovative product. It was more than a product. It was a product line. Mm-hmm. And we were discussing how do we take this international because we don't we don't have any money it was it was they spent all the money developing the product <laughs> you had a very you had a short shoestring i had a very very short shoestring <laughs> and we said why don't we sell it through resellers and at that point there was data communication resellers they sold multiplexes and modems and stuff like that so mm-hmm. there was an infrastructure of resellers around the world we knew that and we assumed that they could resell our products. So um, I started the car and I drove to Germany and I flew to Madrid and I talked to these people and I signed them up as resellers and we trained them and they started selling the products. It was before even the internet was thought of. And it became very fast a success. Obviously, there was a slow start where we needed to sign up the partners. Then the the multiplicator impact of of the of having a channel really kicked in and after four years we we sold this company for a very nice price to uh, to a uk company mm-hmm. and that's what where i learned two things i learned that the channel it takes time to build but there are things you can do to accelerate that process and it's one hell of a multiplicator when you yeah. got it working you were hooked on that point yeah definitely so <laughs> that's uh, right. so that's when i started working with the channel um, the other thing I learned, and I need to go back to that, is that you need to carefully train your partners, not only technically so they understand the product, but you need to, to train their salespeople so that, and their marketing people so that they know where they should take your product and how they should sell it. Mm-hmm. And I think that was what defined and the, 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 the success of, of this, my, my first engagement with, with channel development was that we also we, we trained the salespeople also. And we were very, very strict about which market they should uh, go for. So we j- didn't just throw the products at them and, and said, you go find out where to sell it. We really knew where, where they should sell it and trained them how to do it. And they did it and became successful. And that ac- accelerated the whole thing dramatically. And now shifting, you, you've got your channel consulting business. You've been doing that for many years. What, what kind of services do you offer at TVK? Are, are you helping companies go global on a shoestring? Yeah, we, we do several things. I, I started the, um, the consulting business in, in 2007. Mm-hmm. And by then I had worked all over the world building channels uh, for various types of software. I, I worked for... Um, the company acquired by Microsoft, I, I worked for them in Germany and, and built the channel for them in, in, in Germany, Austria, and Switzerland. So I, I had a lot of experience with building channels. But as, as I grew older, I, I lost my appetite for managing people <laughs> 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 and for, for traveling that much. So yeah. um, I decided to, to start my own business. 
and and became um, a consultant, helping others to do what what I have done uh, successfully. And 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 there are two sets of services. The the one the first set is to develop your concept. Uh, you, you you need a conceptual go to market approach, especially when you deal with partners, because you have to take that conceptual approach to your potential partners and explain them how they can make money with your product. Right. And that's something that I, I, I often see that the companies um, that they get wrong. They, they think that partners should get excited about your product. Yes, yeah, sure they should. But, but really what really drive partners and especially the, the upper echelons of the partners in the executive office, that's how fast can we make a return on our investment? And, and what will this mean for us going forward? Yeah, absolutely. How can I buy a bigger house and a bigger car and have longer <laughs> vacations? So, so you, you need to have that, that concept. I call it the partner P&L model. Mm-hmm. Explained very detailed. This is how we go to market. This is how you sell the product. This is uh, who you sell it to. And you should expect that you'll, it'll take six months for you to win the first customers. And you should have these and these people in the organization to do the various jobs that it takes to make the customers happy. And then, you know, revenue starts to flow. So you need to see the picture over sort of a three-year period. Yeah. Just seeing the, the, the situation over a 12-month month period is, is, is very hard to justify how that will ever become profitable. So, so you, you take that to your, to your potential partners while you in parallel try to, to, to win some customers. So developing this f- framework is what we help customers do. That's what we help our clients put together a sound business partner program, a business partner agreement, and all the other elements that you need to um, to attract partners, the right partners. Right. Then the, the other set of services that, that we provide is that we help them actually find these partners. Okay. And we don't, I do, don't do that personally, but, but I have a, a huge network around the world of people who can do that on ground it's like headhunting really right yeah <laughs> you have a profile this is what we're looking for and then you have a headhunter going out and finding the candidates and pre-qualifying the candidates and bringing them to the table mm-hmm. and you do that globally that we do that globally we do that all over the world nice yeah very interesting well i always like to ask my guests about what they like to do outside the channel and, and you and i were chatting before the call you've got a pretty interesting hobby do you mind sharing that with the the audience? Oh, is that the catching octopus? <laughs> yes, the octopus hunting. <laughs> yeah, it, it's it. it I since I left Germany, um, or the the year I, I went back to Denmark um, from Germany, I I was pretty busy, so I I didn't have the time to plan my summer vacation. Mm-hmm. So uh, my wife and I, our, our kids by then had already flown from the nest. So there was just the two of us, and we threw a couple of suitcases in the back of the car, and we drove south through Germany. And, and, and driving down through Germany, I said, where do we go? And my wife said, we could go to Italy, we could go to Spain, and I said, we could go to Croatia. I haven't been in Croatia for years. And we were discussing, and we really could have made out of our mind. I said, we have to make out of our mind when we get to Munich, <laughs> because in <laughs> Munich, we either have to go right or we have to go left <laughs> so it was not until we came down to munich that my wife said okay let's go left and and we went we came we landed in croatia and the family that we stayed with croatia is not a place where they have very big hotels they have a few but normally you stay privately mm-hmm. people have small apartments that they they rent um, that they have organized in their houses like like 
Airbnb, but that was way before that. But the family that we stayed with, they had a boat and they took us, us on boat rides. And there the, um, the landlord, he taught me how to catch octopus. <laughs> <laughs> And the, 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 the thing is that it's, it's, it's incredible to catch octopus because you have this plastic crab with a couple of hooks on top in a line and you throw it into the water from the boat and the, the Adriatic Sea is so clear that you can see this pla plastic thing on the bottom of the sea, on the seabed. And mm -hmm. then you pull it and as you pull it, you can see the, the octopus coming out of the seaweed and attacking this it, it's it's you know it's it's not like when you go fishing because when you go fishing you don't know what's going on down there right it, you only right. know until you you got the fish out of the water but here you could see everything in in real life and i was really so fascinated that that this became a hobby of mine so whenever i go to croatia i i, I try to find an opportunity to go octopus fishing <laughs> now when you get that slimy creature out of the water it crawls all over you <laughs> yeah Un until you um and and it can and it can also spray this ink on you if you if you're not careful <laughs> and then you well, did then you kill it and you and 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 you take it to a local restaurant Oh, and they cook it up and for you. And they cook it up for you. So you, you bring it there in the afternoon and you say, okay, we'll be back by 7.30. And by 7.30, they have the most delicious thing made out of this octopus. I've, I've never cooked it myself. I've always left oh. it to the experts. <laughs> that is so fun. You know, I heard of a guy doing that when I grew up in Seattle and I started scuba diving. Yeah. Um, and, um, and I remember him talking about bringing it to a restaurant and then... Working for OutSystems, I started going to, to Portugal and fell in love with octopus. I just love the way they, they cook it up there. Yeah, it's so delicious. I don't, yeah, I don't think well, it takes of much, but it's all the spices and things that they yeah, add to it that give us the flavor. <laughs> it's a vehicle for the olive oil yeah, and exactly. garlic and everything else. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it sure is delicious. Well, Hans-Peter, it's been super fun talking with you. Thanks for sharing how to go global on a shoestring. Any final tips for our listeners? Mm, well, yeah, I, I think based on what we learned through this COVID-19 pandemic, um, I think more companies should actually tr try to penetrate foreign markets from abroad. I'm a call out and see what they can get going without necessarily having to travel. I mean, yeah. it, it's going to take another three to six months before we're, we're finally out of the pandemic, right? Before everybody is vaccinated. So until that happens, it's, you have a, a very good excuse why you can't come see people. <laughs> so you might as well take advantage of that and see if you can build some relationships remotely, which is obviously costing you much less than if you have to travel. Oh, that's a great point. What a great time to start going global. Well, that's fantastic. So Hans-Peter, again, thank you. Merry Christmas, and I wish you a very fun and happy and healthy 2021. Thank you for having me, and the same to you. All right. Cheers. Cheers. Bye. All right, there you go, guys. Thanks again to Hans-Peter for sharing great advice on how and when to go global without blowing out your budget. As you're expanding your channel, you'll want a PRM system that can keep up with your expansion, so be sure to take a look at all the capabilities of Magentrix. And if you decide to try them out, you can receive two months free on an annual contract just by using the discount code SPEEPOD20 when you sign up. You can find all the show notes from today's episode with links to Hans-Peter's book at www.channeljourneys.com backslash cj64 
And while you're there, be sure to subscribe so you get notified of all the new episodes. And I've got another great guest for you on my next episode. Until then, have an awesome channel journey. Thanks for listening to Channel Journeys. For show notes and other Channel Journey podcasts, visit channeljourneys.com. If you liked today's show, please forward it to your channel friends. And be sure to tune in for Rob's next channel adventure.